Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Pulp Kitchen, the first bonus episode of 2024. If you haven't listened to it already, go and listen to the most anticipated films of 2024 that we put out, our first episode this year, looking at some of the big releases ahead. Mm -hmm. But we are going to be talking today about a couple of things, all bizarrely Netflix related, but... Mm. We're going to be offering our quick thoughts on Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, which came out over Christmas, which, mm-hmm. which I think a lot of people would have seen. James has finally seen Maestro, which yes. I saw at London Film Festival, but it came out over Christmas. Go check out George's uh, full review. See my original review of that. And we will be talking... Do you want to talk spoilers in this, James, about Maestro? Uh, yeah, we can do. We can do. And then spoilers for Maestro. we'll be really sinking our teeth into The Crown Season 6, which we have finished and in, in its entirety. Like too. So basically, it's a catch-up of, of what a lot of people might have watched on Netflix over Christmas. Mm-hmm. So let's begin quickly with Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, which, yeah. we, which we had a good time seeing uh, last year. We actually saw it a good few months ahead of other people. We had a good experience making our own gingers. That at the, was fun. You know, when we showed it on the, the show. from Ardman. Um, we're big fans of the original. Yeah. I think like a lot of people of our generation are. It's a very beloved British film, full of very British sense of humor, British references, British film history. And we have Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, which is set however many years later. Mm-hmm. It follows on from the happy ending of the first one. They're in sort of chicken paradise. They've Rocky and Ginger. Have the Shire a, meets Endor. Yes. I yeah. And they've had um, Rocky and Ginger have a child and um, the child is called Molly. Molly. Thank you. Played by a voice by Bella Ramsey. And uh, in a voice cast that actually includes more, uh, replaces a lot of old voices than it does retains. Yes. You have Imelda Staunton and Jane Horrocks and et cetera re- staying as Babs and Bunty. But Zachary Levy replacing Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson, Tandaway Newton yep. replacing Julia Sawala, I want to say, oh, is her God, name. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, so, and you have Ramesh Ranga Nathan uh, replace, and uh, Daniel Mays replacing... Uh, Phil Daniels or Phil Davis was it and Timothy Spall Phil Daniels and Timothy Jane Spall Har- Jane Horrocks was Babs in the original yeah, yeah. right yeah, yeah but but you have a slightly uncanny thing at the beginning where you're like oh this is like a AI version where yeah. all the voices are similar and I watched Chicken Run 1 I want to say the week of Chicken yeah, Run 2 same. when I saw it so um, then of course Molly wants to explore goes beyond the sanctuary is aware there's a chicken farm being made that's entangled in this chicken farm mm. the, the gang from the first film including Fowler as well Realize they need to bust Molly out in this very sort of Mission Impossible Thunderbird 60s style yeah. fortress. Um, Most over the top. Over, if if yeah. you asked AI, I don't mean that as a disservice no. to the creation, it's obviously not, but like if you asked AI in a funny way to design the most over the top, elaborate, yeah. evil base from film, that is what yes. they would do. And then they say, please do more. And that's what it would do. And be. wants to go in and, and, and bust them out. And um, it's. Uh, as you know, that's the premise of the film. James, broadly speaking, how did you find it? I had a really, really lovely time with it. It reminded me, as soon as I started watching it, that no one else makes films like this. Yeah. When you talk about the thumbprint of the plasticine and the detail and the attention yeah. to, to, to care. When we spoke to that lovely guy from Ardman who mm. gave us a demo on how to build our own ginger, um, I, I was really just like blown away by the, 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 the Shire Endor home mm. and how many individual moving parts there are in there. And yeah. I can't say anything else looks like that when you see 50 chickens in the background, mm. all of these amazing details that you know have been beautifully and lovingly handmade and how long it takes to do a wide shot. It's, very, it's all very well doing your fe- what, one chicken's face and changing that 24 times a second. But to do a wide shot where you have to change 100 things mm, constantly, yeah. I can only imagine the detail and attention to care that goes into that. And it really shines through. Yeah. Um, I think that the uh, a lot of the crew as well that worked on this film worked on the original. And, and Catherine is a lot of interns and, and sort of starters on that as well. I think you get some of the best, uh, like you do find in the original film, 
great specific gags. Sirens on our end. Site specific witty yeah. gags akin to something like, maybe not as high as this, but like a Paddington film with a kind of, oh, funny little observations. Sirens on our end, sorry. Um, the best gag in the film for us is definitely the um the ice gag. The ice gag. that was I, I mean to me the the evil base was the star of the show mm. i thought that had sucked because basically the entire second half of the film is, is set yeah. there and it has such a one it's a, they're so wonderfully playful and explorative with yeah. that breaking in breaking out d- destroying it building it back together i just thought the whole thing of the lasers and the dogs yeah. so over the top so ridiculous and um, yeah the favorite gag are we doing spoilers right yeah, yeah, yeah. my favorite gag is that you assume that there's this really high-tech laser retina scan system but yeah. really everyone who gets their retina scan there's a sort of secretarial woman who's got a book with a picture of everyone's, everyone's eye, eye and she just holds it up and it's like glenn yeah. mark christy my brother pointed out that the guy who's who works the night shift his eye is very red and tired oh, on the great. book which just love that just so good i think that um if there, I, I will admit, in the first third, in the first act, I did find it strange to settle into. I was aware that this, it, something about it felt, despite all the, all the things you've said about the detail and the love mm. and the craft, something about it did feel a little bit clean and plasticky. Probably because the original was shot on film, actually. This is the whole thing I was wondering And as a well. little bit like, um, not sterile is the wrong word, that's a little bit too mean, but it is, there's something very clean about it. It mm. lost that kind of roughness, even though it has that tactile element. And with the combination of the vocal cast changing and new characters, I was thinking, okay, where do I sit with this? Mm. They introduce new characters, and I'm like, okay, how do I? Do I, how much time do I want to spend with them? But I do think it kicks into gear once they get to, once they get to the evil base. Totally, and there are works. certain. Oh, sorry, by the time it gets to the end, with the again a spoiler here, but with the popcorn firework moment, yeah, that's when I was like, oh, this is this is I'm with this. This yeah. is sweet. This is great. And um, I I'm still questioning about whether it needed to exist <laughs> sure in the sense that like this far on i don't know whether i still i'm not sure whether there was an organic idea organic pardon the pun chickens um a, a, organic idea that was then coaxed out of them or was it more than netflix said here's a load of money would you like to make a second one they said well we'll write a script for you no no problem you know could be that's not i don't want to do a disservice to the film but sometimes if you look close in the dna it's like what's the kind of reason for justifying itself mm. i do think it's 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 charming though and and, mm. and and lovely and if it gets people to watch the original that's fine and i don't think i don't think it diminishes the original it's been enough time um i think it's it, it which we chuckled we laughed yeah. it's it's up just under 90 minutes yeah perfect G- a great netflix film as well um, yes. I, I will say like on the sort of fidelity thing there are certain like techniques and like you'll see this when they remaster Raiders of the Lost Ark in 4K. It obviously still works, but yeah. there's something by by over sharpening and over brightening mm. everything, you reveal stuff that maybe the original editors of the film weren't privy to. Yes. Um, we, yeah. And I think the same thing happens with Chicken Run, where like when you're shooting plasticine really close up on a macro level mm. with cameras now that are shooting 14-bit raw still images, which is amazing in terms of the breadth you can take out of it. But are you now taking a sort of fuzziness out that gives it a quality just a question about on a wide putting that aside so we we have warm feelings towards Mm. the film there Mm. and this might be something we talk about in the context of maestro as well but we had an email recently i don't know if we read it out but we we had it into the show about when that uh, leave the world behind the julia roberts netflix film they went to see right and this emailer i believe is emailed in from australia 
made the point that if we hadn't talked about it, they actually that film would have passed them by. So like, that was quite good to have seen. But you and I, when we're talking about Chicken Run, the other day. we've been affectionate about Chicken Run. We've been looking forward to this film, but we were we were surprised that upon the when it came onto Netflix on the fifteenth of December, the kind of very, I think, quiet buzz around it, and. It could be a product of the fact that the, the, the kind of child entertainment film space has been dominated by Wonka for that period of time. And then maybe they're hoping to spin this as kind of like a word of mouth here. But you and I started to talk off camera about mm. how a film changes. Are we still reaching that kind of buffer of a film is just different if it's released on a streaming platform mm. in terms of in the real world? What Netflix has, it has, to, it has both sides going for it currently. Netflix is the verb. It's the hoover. If we say we're going to Netflix something at home, that could be an umbrella term yeah. for Prime, Apple Plus, yeah. whatever. So they've got that. And I genuinely think when Netflix puts something on the homepage, and especially a documentary really hits, it's all anyone talks about. Yeah. It's the biggest entertainment property this like of that yeah. week, of that two weeks. And if you haven't got Netflix, you're genuinely missing out of the conversation. But despite that, I think... I think films suffer the most from this, really get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. And I, I think it's just because there is so much content mm. and something about taking yourself to go and see something in the cinema, and granted they do do like brief cinematic mm. release of these films, makes something more of an occasion, more of an event. Physically going to take yourself to see something lets it sit in your mind. Today I am going to see Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget. I yeah. will get my ticket. I will take the tube, Chicken Run, Chicken Run. Mm. Versus, oh yeah, I'll just flick that on. Exactly. It has much more of a passing... Fleet, fleetness to Going it. to see Chicken Run, let's say you went to see Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget at a cinema. It's mm. not just about the film watching. You've got your journey there, as you mm. say. You've got to interact with people to show them your ticket. You sit in a physical room. Planet with people around else. you. You are just engaging with it in a completely different way. And it's it's interesting because when when, when the dawn of the streaming platforms happened over the past 10 years, yeah. I, I was very kind of excited about it from a sort of accessibility level. I was like, I cannot, I'm loving how, as a film lover, mm. how much film is open accessible to, uh, to us all now, and a great suite of films every week. Absolutely, but I do, I do think now that now we've got that infrastructure in place, I do think it's true. You do lose something, and and th these past couple of releases have just shown that just putting it onto a stream platform maybe two weeks later is just not quite connecting mm. through to an audience. It's interesting that with Apple when they released Killers of the Flower Moon, what they did is like. It's an Apple film, but we, we haven't told you when it's coming on the, the streaming platform. I still feel like, I know Killers of the Flower Moon, yeah. much bigger film, Scorsese yeah. back film, but that felt much more like a cinematic event, a thing you need to go to the cinema and yeah. see, not something that you know at the back of your mind is going to be on Apple Plus mm. in, in, in two weeks' time, because Apple didn't announce the release date for mm. it. And sometimes I wonder with Netflix if it would be better if they just put the film out and didn't tell you when it was going to be on, and then they gave it like three months and then it's there. And it wasn't like the whole time you were being told it's Netflix, 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 it's coming to streaming mm. platform. Because one day you turn on Netflix and it's there. And instead of you thinking, oh yeah, they, they all, I knew this was going to come. You think, oh, they've got that, that film. film. Which originally... Surprise you. Because if you advertise a film and you don't tell... If you advertise a film and you tell them someone that it's going to be available somewhere else in a few weeks' time, you're giving a person it. a reason to not watch it. Or it's it. only out, like right. very limited timings for a week. Or if you say to someone, this film is out, and, and you don't tell them that it's gonna, when it's going to be on a streaming platform. Mm. You've basically said, this is your only time to see it. You have to see it now. You've given them a, t a time-specific reason to yeah, go and see or it. Miss out. Or you'll miss out. Mm. And that's what happened with Killers of the Flower Moon. And then what happens is a double effect, because then when that film eventually appears on the streaming platform you are subscribed to, you think, oh, 
I'm in luck because yeah. that film had been made a commodity. And it increases the, the, val increases yeah. the value yes. of your subscription. The scarcity increased the value of that, of that mm. film. So when, when it eventually appears in your subscription, you think, ah, oh, I'm so glad I subscribed because I got access to this premium thing I got so there. You should almost like cordon it's, off their content yes, a little bit. Exactly. Instead yeah. of thinking, oh, I'm just getting, why would I pay to go to the cinema to see something that I know is going to be on my streaming platform in two weeks' time? Mm. An interesting conversation there. And obviously, I, we, you know, we're not, there's probably data that drives a lot of this stuff. Yeah, there is obviously data that drives a lot of this stuff. But I increasingly am like, I would rather, you know, try and see a film in, in the real space. And I do think that films kind of suffer and get lost in the mix because of it. I would also just say one other thing. One thing I've realized about the benefit of trying to see films in the cinema as much as you can mm. is that your list of films that you haven't seen, your list of blind spot films is only going to get longer. And the only thing that beats that is trying to see the films you want to see that year that year because otherwise because I, I was looking at the films at the end of 2023 the 2023 releases i hadn't seen mm. right so i had to add it to the list of films i still want to see but i'm like oh actually if i pay close attention and try and catch all those films when i could when i can i then leave more time in my downtime to watch the older films you know yeah, what i'm saying totally. instead of it all being about there's new two stuff. there's two backlogs there's the, yeah. the backlogs you missed this year and then there's the eternal backlogs of what you just haven't seen oh god the eternal backlog. yeah the eternal yeah. <laughs> anyway that in mind, Ed, uh, I'll just say that there's like another point of uh, cinema being the activity of like one sometime later this year, our activity, someone asks, what are you doing this weekend? I'll go, oh, I'm going to see June in the IMAX. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's an activity. He's going. Yeah. He's going to go do it. Yeah. Whereas like you don't say I'm going to go to my home to watch Chicken yeah. Run, Dawn of the Market. You might do. And you there's might a few, do. There's a few films and a few shows that will really do that. And but it's much more likely to not be discussed. You can also look forward to going home to relax to watch something. But it's like, yeah. it's not an event. It's not... It doesn't break you out of your home space. And mm. Anyway, with that in mind, moving on to a Netflix release that was given a cinematic release mm. beforehand. But again, with all the billboards, the big Netflix red N and the coming to Netflix on this date was on a lot of them, which is, of course, Bradley Cooper's Maestro, which I reviewed for the London Film Festival. Go check it out. But James, could you just reintroduce it for us? Mm -hmm. Basically, stop telling people, giving them a get out to not see it in the cinema when you can actually get them to do both. Yeah, Tell them they that they need both. to see in the cinema. Make box office money. Yeah. If you own the film as a streamer, why why not capitalize on it? And if it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't. It depends how much money, how much cost there is into putting something out in cinema. Well, there is a cost, obviously. Yeah, but I'm worried like how much they can take a loss on it if eventually people will come and sign up for Netflix to to watch it in a few months' time. Mm. That's what I don't know. I don't know the business side of it. Anyway, sorry, Maestro James. Maestro, uh, a Bradley Cooper film. Unfilmed to Bradley Cooper. Unfilmed to Bradley Cooper, starring, wrote the theme tune, sang the theme tune, yeah. not literally, but maybe sang the theme tune a little bit, played the theme tune. Uh, it's a biopic all about Leonard Bernstein, and most crucially about... Stein. Stein. Sorry, Bernstein. It is Bernstein. They do say that in the film throughout. It's not Bern I, I've been saying Bernstein, but it's Bernstein. Bernstein. Thank you. Uh, and also more the relationship with his wife, played by Carrie Mulligan. Uh, yeah, you... you Reviewed it. You got the chance to see it at the London Film Festival. Please go and check out George's review. You felt like it had something missing. Do you want to reiterate your thoughts? Okay, my thoughts are basically this. I thought it was very beautiful, mm. luscious. I thought that it was bizarrely, though, empty. And I found it quite a, actually quite a dull experience because I could tell that Bradley Cooper adores Bernstein. Totally. And he's gushing about him. But in his gushingness, I feel like he doesn't... He almost skips over the main interesting points of his life in a way that feels like it's almost like he's embarrassed to talk about the main points because it's so obvious mm. and he wants to kind of cut through to this sort of extra level but the thing is i i came away feeling very empty-handed feeling 
I did not learn much more about Bernstein. I, I think his, his adoration got in the way. And it kind, for me, the focus shifted between what it, what it wanted to be until eventually landing about their relationship. I, I really did find it was less than the sum of his parts, some of its parts, which was mm. uh, uh, a shame. Out of the gate, I start the film and I think that this film, you know, first hour, consistently, all throughout, consistently dazzling. Oh, yeah. Artistically, technically, a joy to look at. Mm. You've got um, Matthew Libertique, who shot uh, Star Wars Born. Mm. Beautiful switching aspect ratios between time periods. Beautiful high contrast, black and white, dewy, yeah. brightness in the eyes. Yes, it has also that sort of um, soft, glowy light that they used in like 1940s films. For, yeah, for, totally. For it feels like scenes. it could have been made in yep. the 1940s. Can't praise the production design and the mm. cinematography enough. It, it, not, not, not problematic like Blonde was, but similarly we thought Blonde by Andrew Dominic was also yes. stunning to look at. Yes. And some of the scenes and sequences are genuinely mm. breathtaking despite, despite the scene. You've got elaborate conducting scenes where Bradley Cooper is thought, mm. we know he's, we've seen all these featurettes about how he spent six years learning to conduct the scene and he's thrashing wildly and mm. sweat is dripping. And he's got this sort of like puppy bright Look smile. Look at me acting. <laughs> yeah. Um, Look, it's it's one of first thing I've seen about it, both in the press and watching it. It is one of the most on the nose attention seeker films for Academy Award yes. nominations. It just on the screams nose. literally on the nose yeah. on the schnoz they put on, uh, <laughs> on it, which I don't, I don't really have a problem yeah. with watching. Um, the, the, by the way, the Leonard Bernstein likeness all throughout from the age Leonard Bernstein. Not that yeah. I really have a good sense of what he looks like, but just the prosthetic and everything. Yeah, what they good. did with Bradley Cooper from young to old, I thought was spectacular. Yeah. No problem with that. Um, what was I saying? The uh, yeah, just almost just begging for awards, yeah. awards nods. I think of of all the awards it could go for, I would say Carrie Mulligan for best supporting is the one I would be. I think she'll actually go for best act. She's top billing in this. Is she top billing? So whatever, whatever she would get, actor, I think yeah. she just continuously blew me away mm. in that film. And where a lot of my emotions did land with the film, it was with Carrie Mulligan's mm. character. And if you've seen it, it's interesting you say that. But uh, so, no, I'll let you finish. No, no, don't well, be... I was just saying with Carrie Mulligan, I agree. I think her performance is great, mm. but because she's in what I find quite a quite an empty film for me, I found her 1940s, 1950s stiffness to be quite grating. And that's not her fault. That's who that character is and who that character, mm. how that character would have spoken. But I found the kind of clipped way and everything a little bit Oh, what are you going to do? Yeah. Of course right? I'm going to do this. Oh, yes, I'm going to yes. talk like that. It's, uh, so, yeah, it, there is that. And the dialogue style is intentionally layered. <laughs> and I think Bradley Cooper's book is saying he loves layered dialogue. And I think where he rests on the shoulders of... Aaron Sorkin, Amy Palladino, who do that. They are known for that kind of dialogue. Everyone in this film, and I realized this about 50 minutes in, 5-0, everyone is talking, but they're saying very little. Yes. There's so many words, that's, so many things that, being said. It, for me, that's the whole film. It, it says so much, but does so little. So it took me 50 minutes, and that's about the time, call it an hour, when the film shifts from black and white into color. And I was, I kept thinking, I was like, what, what, but what, but what are we talking about? Yeah. And where, what's the film? What's the and where film? Where are we? Exactly. What, what's happening? And yeah, there's beautiful dance sequences. And there's this lovely shot where Carrie Mulligan, you see her for the first time and she arrives at this house and the light mm. glows and I'm like, this is so beautiful, but what's the significance? And him dancing on the stage and being all skittish. I'm like, yes, but, but why? Mm. And it wasn't until that transition into, you know, telling the dynamic between Leonard Bernstein being a closeted gay man and the dynamic with his wife and that sort of lends attention there. And I'm like, okay, it's about this, but it does so much talking and says so little. Mm. Similarly with music, 
that sequence where it's one, I think maybe one or two uninterrupted takes and he's violently thrashing. It's beautiful. It looks amazing and it sounds amazing, but I don't know why it served the plot. Mm. When I think about some of the really top musical sequences, you know, I can think about Whiplash. Mm. That last moment almost has no dialogue, but it feels like a question, a conversation, Mm. a fight, an argument, and a resolution in one scene. That's why it's so brilliant and you don't need anything to be said because you get that. Mm. I'm not saying we need to invent a conflict in Leonard Bernstein's life, but I can't help but think that maybe it's just showing off a little bit, yeah. which is a shame because the music is great and, and I, I think Bradley Cooper's brilliant. Um, and I, I just, I just, I thought there's a lot of cigarette acting. Mm. Yeah. A lot. I, I know everyone smoked at the time, but there's just an awful lot of. Oh, you're yeah. talking like this, and oh, I'm gonna do. Instead of like actually reacting, you get to go. Which is, yeah. it, it's so A level drama to me. Yeah. It's so A level drama, which I know is an insult to the real talent on board. But I thought it was okay. My mom, I watched it with my mum. We watched it on Netflix at home. And at the end of it, my mum goes, This is a sp- mild spoilers for, for, for my, or spoilers for Maestro. He goes, My mum goes, he was gay, but he loved his wife. And I'm yeah. like, yes, and yeah. <laughs> that I yeah. could tell from like the yes. first bit. He always had loving affection for his wife, yeah. but he was also gay and he was also brilliant and also went on to teach. And I that, ju- is, that is the first two paragraphs on his Wikipedia page. Yeah. Give me more. He, he, he was a little bit of a narcissist, a little bit up himself. He, he talked a lot and he bounced between people. I know. That's my Loved point. a cigarette. I felt very underserved by the film it is it, I, I i i agree after the, i probably had the same thing when uh, when you have that shift to color that was the point i was like i've just watched 50 I've, minutes i've I watched don't 50 know. first scenes of a movie first scenes 100 like, like, where you're setting up the movie and and you're like what is it i you you there's what there's one shot in it only one shot in that i really thought there was some good meaning in which is the scene where he's with matt bomer a character not explored enough who's yeah. clearly had a um, you well, know relationship parts of it yeah who has had a relationship with and they clearly love each other and they and he's told Matt Bomer that he's going to marry um Kerry Mulligan yeah and they walk down Central Park together in complete silence that's the most interesting part of the film yeah. and then it moves on to other things I was like I wish you had that emotional depth to just stay on that story for a bit longer mm. or invest that elsewhere because and then it also flirts with you know the anti-semitism in the in in, in yeah the, and I'm like I would just barely though. Yes, exactly. A scene and a half, really. It flirts around until, it, like I said, it finally settles on this the relationship. And yeah, I. And there's moments <laughs> that have done really well in that relationship, like specifically un, un, uncut argument scenes that are shot from afar, always shot from a distance. I found the the Macy's Day Parade argument yeah. scene incredibly acty. Stagey, uh, there is static. That. Look at us doing our big performances, and we're doing shouting, and you're there suffocating, aren't you? And you're just suffocating, and then they get Snoopy to come by the window, and it's like, oh, it just feels so stiff and over the- and indulgent. There is that, but the performances did. I did think the performances were very good. I I thought the overlapping dialogue where it didn't need it felt very staged. It felt mm. like actors really trying to lose, to sharpen up their cues. Mm. Felt like stage actors trying to sharpen up their cues. That's the only time I didn't like it. I actually like, I actually liked the argument scene and I liked the one they had when Bradley Cooper's in his pants in their home. Yeah. It's also shot like down the hallway as if a child was like watching their arguments oh, fight. Kind of. And like, you know, the, car- car- you know, Karen Mulligan's character's death and you know, the way it depicts cancer is very sad, but also I've, I've seen it before. And again, what does it tell the rest of the story, apart from the fact that Leonard Bernstein always loved his wife. I know, and I, I said this at the time, there was a, a great TV show called Fosse Verdon about how Bob Fosse, who was the director of mm. a, a stage 
impresario behind Cabaret and Chicago and stuff. And his wife slash ex-wife, Gwen Verdon, the dancer, they had this tumultuous relationship, tumultuous relationship where they loved each other, they hated each other, married each other, divorced each other, slept around, had this kind of creative, problematic relationship. And that, like, when I watched Maestro, that just, like, barely touches the iceberg of what that Ooh. whole show was able to achieve. And I think that's a more interesting story. You need more. But, but, but I also got the feeling, I was like, maybe, like, there isn't that much to say about him. Is, there, is this, with a film that's produced by Sco, um, Spielberg, Spielberg and Scorsese, Scorsese. has taken years to make, are you telling me this is all you have to say, which is not that much? Yeah. What's the main drama in his life, uh, other than Taking he was gay but he loved his wife? Conduct, no, but conduct, what's, the drama, what's the drama in Bernstein's life? Again, yes, like, he was a closeted gay man who loved his also, wife. Also, like, there, there was never a, he never struggled, as far as the film was concerned, with his success. It came very easily to him. Yeah. He wrote the musicals, he conducted the things, he, he wrote, he yeah. made his own scores. It was Barely like, talks about West Side Story. Very busy, there's the TV scene. Well, she seems to know my schedule better than I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, cool, you're very successful. Oh, and also... I'll, yeah, let's do a bit where I'm in a bit prosthetic and I'll have a big dangling cigarette and we'll just do a slow pan up on my face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bradley's there going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this will do well. Look, when Bradley Cooper has talked about it in interviews, I don't doubt his sincerity. Mm. I, I mean, as I said before, the, his love for Bernstein shines through. But I do feel underserved. I think I, when, when the amount of gushing Oscar praise gets put on this, I think, please, please, guys, come on. It's, it's really... begging for Oscars. Yeah. Begging. It, it's not... Embarrassing, really. <laughs> It is a bit. It's in, not um, giving much. You know, it's I, giving little. Remember I told you about that actors and actors thing I watched with Fassbender and Carrie Mulligan. Mm. And, you know, Fassbender was congratulating Mulligan on the performance of Maestro. And she talked about accepting the role and she said that you know, she auditioned and loved the process. Bradley Cooper apparently was like, we're going to do it, but I want you to be, give everything. I want you to give everything you can. And she was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> and apparently like for years, Bradley Cooper would be calling her up at like 9.30 p.m. on a school night in character as Leonard Bernstein talking to her about the film. And she was like, kind of like putting her kids in the bath, like doing her thing, being like, yeah, yeah, sounds great. Like she didn't say it like that, but my impression of that yeah. was like, yeah, if you say so, yeah, like yeah, whenever you want Brad. to do it. Yeah. It was Gary Mulligan, I think, probably not as attached outside the hours of 95. Yeah. <laughs> But she, still, but still did an incredible. I, I don't, yeah, job. don't get me wrong. A very good job, and, I, and she, you know, she's a great actress. She's really, really good. But I, I think disappointing. I, d I don't. Yeah, I don't. Do you not feel really, disappointed? Feel disappointed. Yeah. I, I could tell. I, I tell within twenty minutes. I really was like, God, I'm just not. It's only when I first felt what the film was about. I was like, God, that was just a load. Of, it's it's a really long two hours. Yeah, That's two it. hours, two hours ten, two hours fifteen or something. Yeah. Anyway, but let us know your thoughts on Maestro. If you disagree with us, whatever, send an email to hello at popkitchenpodcast.com and we'd love to discuss it. It didn't even, sorry, it didn't even get into like the granular detail of what it means to conduct. It, if you're going to yes. learn for six years. Tar told me more about conducting. Totally. I knew nothing about why Leonard Burns, you know, in the beginning, he, another first scene, he is called last minute at the age of 25 mm. to conduct an orchestra in front of a huge crowd, huge stakes, and he nails it. Tell me about why that's so hard to do. Yeah. For what, as far as I know, you just wave a stick to time and you point at the violin when the violin yeah. goes. I, I, I know it's more I than know that. I know it's more than that. But that's what I think Tar, about Tell a fictional me. character, gave me more insight and more drama about being a conductor. Inspiration for his greatest symphonies. Yeah. Inspiration for West Side Story. Inspiration for anything. Flat. Shame. But... Shame. Um, Keep at it, Brad. If, if Carrie Mulligan won something, I'd be like, yeah, fair. Yeah, fair. I, I, I think she... If she get... gets best... If she gets nominated for best actress, I think she's more likely to lose than if she was best... Yes, but I think she's going... I think she is best actor because she's top billing in this, which I found 
interesting. But yeah. she, I think she'll be nominated. I don't think she'll win. Mm. Because I do think there are better performances in better films. I think Which hers helps. is good. I think at the moment, if we're just going to do early one, I think best actress category is looking like Kerry Mulligan for Maestro. You might get Alessandra Huller getting in there. Emma um, Stone for Poor Things. Emma Stone for Poor Things, definitely. I think that could be a front runner, actually. Yeah. And um, you might get Natalie Portman for May, December. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, just as an early... I think Sandra Hill will get a nom. I'd like, I'd like it. Mm. I had to get a nom, mm. yeah. Um, but I think that's probably it. Okay, let's get into The Crown, though. The Crown season six. The final season has part concluded. Two. Part of season six, part two, thank you, has <clears> concluded. <throat> we talked about part one of season six in a bonus episode a couple of weeks ago, which, of course, focused pre- predominantly about... Diana, the last mm-hmm. years, of her, the last year of her life, that last summer, um, where she spent with Dodie Fired, and uh, on the whole, you and I were both happy with, with with how those episodes were. Yeah, I thought season six was really strong. Really, I thought, really strong. yeah, and I think that the um, after feeling in seasons four and five that the crown was really starting to lose its grip and slip in terms of its handling of this story, I felt like those four episodes did a really good job. And I have to say, we're going to talk about this, but I do think the the part two of season six also con- um, managed to continue that strong run and i think i'm on the whole i'm happy with the way it concluded totally and i want just before we get into it i want to just pick up on a conversation we had about the sort of really unfair criticism that the crown part one yes. i think it's got this every season but it really feels like crown part one got for the diana coming back in the consciousness projection of whoever i personally didn't like that and i think it took away from the impact of the ending. Right. But I, I wasn't like inflamed by it. Season two, uh, part two of season six has had similar reactions to the story about Harry dressing up as a Nazi. But that happened. I know, but it's like, crowd season six, part two, portrays Harry as swastika bearing thing. I and it just, gets so, it just gets such an outrageous thing. We're like, that's a true story that tastefully tells how that kind of yeah. slightly stupid situation happened. It's not, it's not a bad TV show for doing that. Just, and I feel like the yeah. crown in general gets a lot, I guess, under a really sort of weird become, microscope from yeah. the sort of Daily Mail, Daily Star. It's become reviews. the show people love to kick, actually. And people have kind totally. of given up on because, okay, it, it did diminish in quality. But I agree, the reviews for the early part of season six were just unbelievably uh, over the top. And, and, and yes, there was this thing about Diana's ghost coming back, which was a complete misunderstanding however whether you liked it or not you and i both agreed it's not her ghost it's it's a complete misphrasing and and a shallow understanding of that moment and i agree that i've seen some very mid to negative reviews of this batch of season six well we're going to get into it today and we can tell you that it's really top it's really good actually so just also to preface george we went to the premiere we did go to the premiere we got the chance to see the final episode of the show yeah this is really bizarre We, we we saw the final episode first which was strange but actually seeing it in, on a big screen in front of a live audience was quite special because the crown with its budget and with its scale, it's apart from the premiere last year, this was the first time this, this felt like a proper way to watch the crown actually on a, on a big screen. I've always said when we've seen it, there's, there's something so much to be gained from seeing the crown on the big screen that it, it is unfortunately lost at home, but so nevertheless, just on this part of season six. then, so we, yeah. we pick up um, in the, in the months in here, if you want, Okay, okay. Well, you, you tell you what, I'll start, but it guided me if I go off track. Yeah. So we pick up um, in episode five in the aftermath of Prince Diana's death with a, a Prince William played by a new actor because mm. um, he's now a bit older and he's also a changed person. Um, <laughs> uh, going back to Eton after the death of his mother and following him in the early years, struggling with his grief, struggling to sort of process 
having conflict with his father. And, and I thought what immediately shone through this episode was like a very great understanding of drama because what mm. begins is kind of frustration between William and Charles then spins out and triggers something in Prince Philip about his relationship with his father and yeah. his relationship with, with Charles as his son. And you get this kind of concluding scene between Philip and, Char and, Philip and William about what it means to be a father, what it means to be a child. And this kind of therapy session light where he says, I know you're angry. This just follows also a very sort of horrible argument between Charles and William, where William says a lot of things that I think a lot of the public would probably say, which is like, why was she with these people? You, you, it was the link in a long series of events that you pushed her towards through your, through your behavior. And then Philip makes the point that says, no, you're not just angry at your father because of those things. You're angry because you're actually also angry at your mother, but you can't express it because of the tragedy that's happened. I thought Philip was really well activated as mm. a character to be used in that yeah. scene. He's laid a little bit dormant in the story, mm. like here mm. and there. It's like mostly a sort of somewhat comedic reactionary mm. role. But like given what we know about his story with Matt Smith and what he, like mm. conclusions he had to come to within himself to sacrifice and then yes. offer this wisdom and this support role, yeah. very well used. And that ending scene where he brings William back to Highgrove and, he, and, yeah. and, and William goes and hugs Charles. Yeah. And Philip overlooks that. I think it's a really nice, nice. moment. It's also recognizing character growth in him, but also growth in terms of how times have changed. Philip is, has grown enough to be self-aware to realize that the way he conducted his love and relationship and affection 50 years prior yeah. is not appropriate anymore. Mm. And, and times need to change. And I, I really like that as a moment. You then get episode six, which is Ruritania. Yeah, which, President Blair, the whole... Which, for me, is, is top-tier crown. Yeah. It's the kind of crown that I think does, does well. So this is the episode, very, a very Blair-heavy episode. Mm. He sounds so much like Brilliantly Blair. played by Bertie Carvel. Uh, really. Without being a caricature, but no. he nails it. Like, you, uh, it doesn't look like Tony Blair, but when I close my eyes and you hear him do the speeches, yeah. and the, you know, even at the he Queen's Jubilee. He nails all the things. All the um, things. What I liked about that is... So the crown, which is written by Peter Morgan and was created by Peter Morgan, draws a lot of its uh, source from a play Peter Morgan wrote called *The Audience*, which is about the crowd. Sorry, which is about the Queen's audiences with her Prime Minister through the ages. And this play ran a few times, and, and Helen Mirren played it a few times. And you know, in this play, it's just it's a very simple set where you have the chair for the Queen on one side and the Prime Minister, and you have Thatcher coming in, you have major stuff. And then often in episodes of *The Crown*, you'll see in the credits, they'll say, "Oh." you know, inspired by the audience, by Peter Morgan. And that's why I think sometimes the crown at its best is when it engages with the prime ministers. And you have this duality between the elected but politicised leader of a country and the unelected but non-political leader, a, a representative of, of, of a country. And um, what you have in that Blair episode, Ruritania, is just similar to like the ones she had with Churchill... Or, 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 or even the Thatcher episodes, like you just have this idea of a country changing, completely competing ideals, new and old. And for me, that's when the crown is at its best and it leans into that, the audience heart. It's also from a, like observing from a far perspective, access to the conversations we were least privy to as mm. members of the public. Those yeah. were the most private meetings. Yes. The queen d didn't talk about them. We'd never like mm. tell like the political preferences, even though we get, we can yeah. get a sense she loved beer, John Major and, and Ed Heath. But, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. And it's, I don't know if she liked Ed Heath. Edward Heath. No, she didn't like Edward oh, Heath. It was, no, she liked John Major. I think she liked, it was Harold Wilson she was fond of. According to the Crown, she affection. She didn't like Ted Heath at Who all. Who was the one she invited for tea? Thatcher. No, it was Howard Wilson, I think. And he was the Labour one. Yeah, Howard Wilson, and he had to retire because he was ill. I'm he, of another one from. I mean, 
no, from no. season four. No, there was no Labour Prime Minister in season four. Or season three. three. Howard Wilson. <laughs> they start, they didn't do like How many times do you want me to say Howard Wilson? It's Howard Wilson, and then it comes Ted Heath, who she doesn't like, and then goes back to Howard Wilson. Yeah, anyway. anyway. Um, uh, but, sorry. Uh, and uh, there is something inherently interesting about watching two very famous world figures on a screen in front of you mm. having a tete-a-tete. So I like that one. Episode seven is then about the uh, Kate. Kate and Will's relationship, who... Uh, I've spent a lot, lot more time in St. Andrews than I thought they yeah, would. I, I really liked the actor who played Will's. Uh, he nailed the voice. Uh, yeah. Will's his voice. I, I, oh, yeah, really interesting. Like, uh, politeness, polite and sincere. But also kind of like staccato. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. no. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I liked that episode. I, I had some people kind of say that they leaned into the dramatic license of the involvement. Kate of, and the mum. Yeah, however... Yeah. It was quite bold. The, I, it, there are a lot I've of heard, I've, I've heard that story prior to the crown telling. There it, are like if we could put our sort of gossiping hat on. There are so many weird uh, uh, similarities about their lives and like switching from Edinburgh is like a real thing. Have you seen like she was kind of obsessed with William like a lot of teenage girls were like when she was young. Like very much knew him as a presence, and they went to the same gap year place that he went to, where they take like yeah. four people a year yeah. to build I, huts. And I didn't. I didn't have a problem with that episode. I, I enjoyed it. But, it was good uh, drama. Yeah, it was, it was good. a good bit of drama. And then you get um, Princess Margaret's final episode in her the Ritz. Brilliantly played by um, Leslie Manville. I mean, that, I mean, with that whole thing about the Ritz, I thought that was a bit more ridiculous. But it turns out, I mean, not going to the Ritz, but apparently they did, they did join the celebrations, the two sisters. I thought the way that episode ended with the, with the connection between the two of them and putting an end on Margaret's, mm. uh, Margaret's whole storyline, I thought was really Because again, Margaret very much dormant for, for a really That's, long time. Uh, and had such a great uh, spell, I thought, in the beginning. I, this is the thing with Princess Margaret as a character within the crown. I, yeah, the Vanessa Kirby era is the most it's interesting incredible. part of um, Princess Margaret. And I have to say, every time we've had a Margaret episode since then, it, uh, it's been a little bit of the same thing, which is, I'm very sad. I'm the jilted sister. Yeah. I've smoked a lot. I drink a lot. I'm all, I'm 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 extrovert, but inside I'm heartbroken. And sometimes we've returned. And so, in like season five, this is the issue I had in season five: is that the Margaret episode in season five is about her relationship with Captain Townsend again, and all yeah. it does is just reheat the I drama that reheat from se- season one. I'm like, yeah, we did this. It's it's all very sad. Mm-hmm. And I did get a little bit of that with this, but I think Leslie Manville is so good in it. I think it's a really interesting portrayal of someone at that phase of health. Um, and I think you're right, the, ni- the nice goodbye. The actress who plays the young Margaret is the same actress who played the young Margaret in season one in a flashback. That's what I okay. noticed that straight away. That's nice consistent. The actress who played the Elizabeth is different, but the actress who plays the young Elizabeth in the rich scenes is made up to look so much like Claire Foy. I thought it was oh, brilliant. Yeah, a, lot, a really, really nice lot, little... Yeah. Um, and, then, um, and then you get episode nine, which is... Dodi Al-Fayed. Uh, oh, Mohammed Al-Fayed sort of campaign inquiry. of craziness. And yeah. the looming, the golden jubilee, the the queen mother passing. It's quite away. an important uh, episode for the crown to decide to make an episode on, right? Like, think about how much people because mm. it, it makes a very definitive statement, mm. literally in terms of a, pre, a police press conference, mm. which is all based on fact, obviously. It's all based on facts, but it's a lot of people will like to throw around. Oh, the, the royal family killed Diana, mm. and I think the crown We're enjoys. Yeah, it's just a, a popular yeah, it is, it is conspiracy a, theory yeah. that likes to be talked about around breakfast tables yeah. every time there's a platinum jubilee or whatever. And I think there's... A, every crown, time there's a platinum jubilee. Every time there's a jubilee <laughs> wedding, yeah, whatever, sure, sure, you sure. Want, whatever you want to say. Um, and I think there's... It, it does quite a lot to sort of have fun with the truth and show you the, the behind closed doors conversation we know didn't happen. But I think it made a really clear decision to be like, 
We're a factual TV show. We tell history as it was in a way that we want to take an entertainment license with history as it was. But it was, I think it made a really clear call to be like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, this is a tragic, <laughs> this terrible This is the accident. evidence. They yeah. spent a lot of time showing you play-by-plays, diagnostic evidence, forensics, police also, showing the scrutiny yeah. that that went under. And without... And the emotional state- toll it took yeah. on Will and Charles and all of that. And without stating it, it made it clear that Mohammed Alfred was grieving a lot, but also he was obsessed with the royal family. Yeah, he was totally. obsessed with trying to get into it, and that really corrupted his context for that family as well. I thought. Yeah, and then I, what I liked about episode nine is so this is when Will's has kind of developed his relationship with Kate. He goes to see her. It's the golden jubilee. Actually, sorry, one thing: the the, the queen mother dies in a way that I think they personally I think they could have done more with that because the queen mother again been a very dormant character. Yeah, season one and two. Bit more, more very present very present and then just gradually fading out of it and the thing is about the queen mother is that no she probably wasn't a major royal by the end but the fact is she lived to like 101 yeah. she was a, a, a widow and a serving royal for 50 years like she's just yeah. there she yeah. sees throughout all this time the queen's getting older all this drama the queen mother is and just there queen mother and margaret were two of like the queen's closest exactly. like if i have a problem i voice it with them That's, so, like, so, the queen at the end of the series is left alone yes which leads into sort of a lot of the and I, and I did think, oh, are they not going to kind of like explore that a bit more that you had this mm. person just like, I don't know. I thought it was just an inter- interesting one. But anyway, just before we move on from... I'm not, no, no, I'm not going to move on. I was just going to say that um, my favorite thing about episode nine was this kind of... The, the relationship that builds between uh, Elizabeth, or the Queen and William about being like a future heir and this sort of like weird horseshoe similarity between them. Yeah. And that she... That, that I, I love it that it point ends on when she's like, you need to find your Malter. You need to find your point before yeah. you, w- when you're still you. Got Smith and Foy back for a little Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, expensive oh, cameo. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Bet they had fun. And, <laughs> you know, you need, you need to have um, your own life before you become... And, 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 and I was looking at William and I was like, you are re- reminding me of the Elizabeth from series one before her father died. Totally, who's yeah. in line for the throne, but is trying to have an identity. And what I liked in episode nine, and then it builds on it in episode 10, is that with the death of the Queen Mother and Princess Margaret, who is left to remember the original uh, Elizabeth Windsor? And even, I think, in, in, in episode 10, I believe Claire Foy's, you know, reanimated presence we'll to that, yeah. says to her, Elizabeth Windsor died a long time ago. You know, mm. she, she doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And that's why you must keep going. You can't go back to being her because she's not around. And that's what Margaret says to her. You know, that's who you, like, that's one time we saw who you really were back when we mm. were at the Ritz. Um, and I liked that kind of changing of generations and recognizing it's kind of come full circle back to the sort of the young heir in waiting. And really good to sort of instruct Will on what it means to have people in your life who will live parallel to the monarch mm. for, for their entire lives mm. and how aware you need to be with that and sort of nudging at like Harry complications mm. down the line without mm. actually talking about it. Because the queen, the whole crown has been about dealing with people who live parallel to her yes. and who will live in service to someone they will never succeed. Like that, that's an interesting that, that works yeah. the whole season. And then you uh, get to episode... Just, sorry, just before you move on, like, one of the things I thought was really a really nice comment was the actor who played Dodi Al-Fayed during mm. The Crown made a really great comment about mm. giving a voice and context to a character who had been very much brushed aside, who mm. by the media had been painted as a foreign entity who had taken Diana away. Yeah. And th- th- I, this is more of a part one comment, but that that season six gives such a great understanding as to who he was, what yeah. he wanted. He was a person. He, went, he died. He, was, you know, he's, he's tried he had his own it. sort of complicated relationship with his father and yeah. what he wanted to do and with Diana. Yeah. And like sort of took the, any sleaziness, I think, out of yeah. that relationship. Which humanized think, it. Humanized it. I think the media sort of, I think, 
it gave me a new context how the media would have portrayed it at the time. Not that I was alive. No, no, no I, I agree. And then um, you get to episode ten, and, and I, I, what I would, obviously the whole, the whole season's building to this, and I can say that when you and I mm. watched it, I, I felt very happy with the way that it lands. Mm. Uh, episode ten starts with about Operation London Bridge. Yes, about about how uh, how you're going to plan your funeral essentially. Yeah. Philip's loving it. He's like yes. all of these in yes. the most Philip way. Actually, really funny from Jonathan Price. Yes, he um, has a couple uh, of moments. The other bit I find really funny with him is when he phones up the fancy dress shop about their Nazi uniform, and he's like, the "Nazis didn't wear swastikas <laughs> on that kind of uniform. It's completely historically inaccurate." I love this moment, like towards the end of you know the Crown when. Jonathan, uh, Philip and Elizabeth have such a strong bond that he, like, despite having his own problems with the Queen, will not hear a bad word about mm. her from anyone. Yeah. And he is so sure on what is right and proper. Mm. And you can just tell that they are people who've been together for a hundred years. Yeah. I, I just love that little moment of loyalty. It really builds them as, as off-screen presences. So, so episode 10 begins with preparations for not only Operation London Bridge, they're reviewing what happens when the Queen dies, but also yeah. Charles and Camilla's wedding. Yes. And the, one of the most interesting ingredients... You're heading towards this wedding. The queen is maybe is really thinking about her mortality, but also her place and and her role and and her identity. It's all coming to a head. Mm. She's reaching reti- like typical retirement. Typical age. retirement age, and uh, she's about seventy-seven, I think, at this point, isn't she? Uh, seventy-six. She's like mid to oh, yeah, late seventies in, in at this point. Yeah. And um, one of the actually the most interesting things I think they did was the setting in a very sort of kind of setting the scene for the conflict between William and Harry that while a lot of this story is resolving itself and I really like the fact that they gave Charles from a character perspective this kind of ending it makes sense that yeah. from a character's arc it Support ends with what he does now. Charles and Camilla this wedding that we all know because however you feel about Charles and he is a conflicted character they did set up early on that he really should have been able to marry Camilla early on. That would have yeah. been, that would have spared so much heartbreak and trauma for him, for Diana, for everything. Optically for the public to accept in it the same and not way, be like a exactly. Sham, yeah. In the same way that Margaret should have been allowed to marry yeah. um, Townsend, right? But, <clears throat> so I like the fact that they ended it with, with him. But with Harry and Wills, obviously we know their story now. And without leaning into it too much, it's just this hint that, yeah, I just like the differing ideas. Will is the loyal, he's growing into the establishment as Harry calls him a company man at one point. Yeah. And then uh, Harry, meanwhile, is just like, how can you drink the Kool-Aid on this? How can you be? And just the growing friction, which isn't resolved in the episode because we know it's going to manifest later in life. It touches just enough based yeah. on stuff that's still very much, we can't see the forest yes. the trees on that. Um, but I liked but I liked that little hint. And, and I, I, the previous episode, Willis said, do you not think I'd quite like to not take it seriously <clears> and have yeah. fun and doss around and not have to be responsible? Before we watched the episode, I said to James... So, because we knew we knew that Claire Foy and Olivia Con were going to return in some capacity. I'd seen the Maltish clips, and I was yeah. like, they've got Claire Foy back yeah. for something in the trailer. I'm talking. But then I said to James, I was like, do you think we're going to have a clip where she speaks to her younger self? And and sure enough, we got it twice. I thought it was great. Though. I did. I, I really did. I loved not just seeing them, but having the two women from different or the two versions of Elizabeth from different periods mm. arguing different cases yes. of whether or not she should essentially abdicate. Yeah. I thought that was really really well done. Yeah. It was the it was the Elizabeth Avengers, uh, yes. and I thought it was efficient and sharply written, yeah. and it had a big smile on my face. And it was just I loved that debate going on in her head. It's and I, really good. and the. Ultimate conclusion: so You have you know the wedding for Charles. Also, that sort of mini arc that Blair has within the series, I think, is great yeah. because he goes from being President Blair to being this sort of you know hated figure because yes, of the war. Exactly. And then you end with the wedding of Charles and Camilla. The Queen stays. You're right; they have that wonderful <clears throat> scene with Prince Philip 
in the sort of in yes in the church mm. and um the you're left for the queen imagining her own coffin and all of this is really well res really drawing on the resonant imagery we have from the queen's funeral right so Always, yeah. very very uh, you know uh, recent history the queen imagining her own coffin she sees herself as a young land girl as we saw in that ritz episode she sees clef or she sees livia coleman and i just the kind of culmination of that the use of the bagpipes which i think it's just so oh, i mm. love bagpipes i love bagpipes and that long walk she gives last shot slight metaphorical walk into the light into the light about being Yes, this has been about, ultimately, she has been the constant, she has been, it's about her life. I, I thought that was all really well done. Mm. I think it landed brilliantly. And I think it ended each character in the, in the right place. I love that Olivia Coleman's Elizabeth was saying, look, you're, you're, you are getting older. This is where you failed. This is the people that mm. you've lost. This is the version of yourself that you've lost. And then Claire Foy comes in and was like, I'd argue that you've never, you, you've, you're in your prime. Mm. you've actually never been sharper you've never been slicker mm. never been more experienced mm. and she actually ultimately leans into into that and obviously as we know never abdicates until her death yeah and keeps, brilliant uh, yeah i i think I, and, it, and it's sorry it's the queen walking off into the light not to die she does not die no, in that no, moment no. it walks off into what i think the crown argues is her most iconic silhouette her most iconic mm. form oh, in really? living memory yes i believe that in the world of the show but i believe that imagery is doubly resonant because she is now dead yes there is a kind of heaven-like departure ascending ascension God, yeah. metaphorical thing going a on long there. slow walk across the hall of a cathedral yeah. into arches of light that yeah. get brighter as she goes along with with her shadow stretching long mm. behind her well exactly i i think it landed really well and you and i finished it but we were both like yep that was actually a good and ultimately, as far as TV shows go with six seasons mm. spread over that number of years, I do think, despite... It's very hard. We talked about this a long time, how hard it is for shows to maintain a standard of quality mm. throughout. I think as far as TV shows will go, I will hold The Crown as up there with one of the most consistently high quality. I do think it's done really well mm. with six seasons. I do. I know what you mean when you, when you make a face about seasons three and four, but ultimately... It's more four I would, or five, actually, I think, for me. Yeah, okay. I would say throughout that, thematically going through, that is a great season, uh, series of television you could look at and dip into. Yes, I feel... I, I can kind of get behind that. I, I'm almost there yeah. with you. I do think the best is season one and two. But I, I actually totally. would say that this season for me is... Third. Some of the best that we've seen since then. So it's actually. the third best season. Yeah. Um, I think what I liked is about season six is that it's all, for me, the, the crown has always struggled to fold the Diana drama into the rest of the story and balance it in a way it that took works. Up three seasons of the show as well. Yeah. I would have never told you at the beginning that Diana will be present and, uh, you know, unpacked for yes. three seasons, unless she's not in it. But really, we got. Mm. Half of the allocation of the crown's TV was to die. Well, exactly. It's quite and, and it, obviously, they wanted to be fair and give her 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 appropriate time. But the more it became about Diana's story, the less the, the show became like it used to be. Anyway, mm. but what I liked about season six, they said, okay, we we're just focusing on Diana for four episodes. Let's give that absolute our full attention, and yeah. then that's done. And I think that worked well because then what happens? I felt that whole dedication, that sort of emotional bomb that goes off in the family. I think gives a really great context for those next six episodes of part two. Let's it breathe more. It just, I just see this kind of like post-Diana world where they're all recovering and all trying to question themselves. They've had this reckoning. They had this outsider come in, this, this big challenge. How does the, the royal family go from its most unpopular point in her reign? Uh, yeah, and, and uh, it's, it's, uh, I, yeah, I do. I, I hold it up as a 
pretty good. It's one of Netflix's best shows, as far as I'm concerned. Well, this is it's been this, this and Stranger Things really is the kind of staple. I mean, Stranger Things is worldwide more. I think the Crown. Yeah. But it's interesting how the British, I think it's more a comment on British media and British establishment, sucked up the Crown, adored it, and then started to reject it by the end. It's, it would be so easy for the Crown to be bad when you think about it, all it, the things it point. indulges in and all the sort of not. It doesn't. Again, it's not. It's not it doesn't lie or sort of make stuff up but it does take liberties with the truth mm. it would be so easy for us to sit and be like what they did that with that mm. decision I, I think all in all it lands the yeah. plane it really does so. and it delivers the emotional punches I, I really thematically really consistent mm. with the same kinds of arguments that happen in season one are, are, are so mm. fresh in your memory when it comes to the last few episodes and like that that dynamic is still present I really hope Elizabeth Debicki is recognised for her performance brilliant absolute standout really I mean, really good it's an iconic person you know it's an iconic role mm. but she really does do, do a fantastic job and it doesn't feel like an impression it really feels like mm. she's there and just looks so much like diana mm. when she's got all like the trendy 90s well we saw at the university. premiere we saw the fantastic yes um, that was very cool the costumes and the art department they basically reinstalled the art department there it was just a joy old phones costumes yeah. diana throughout the years pearls mm. bracelets very very cool but that's what we think about the crown what do you guys think did you think it ended well did you think it ended not successfully please let us know your thoughts and we will think about it and read them out and uh, not just think about it we will read them out um because we'd love to hear what other people think as well uh, if how you felt the show fared over six years uh, six seasons and seven years that was the crown do you think we're bigger crown fans than our audience are i, don't I know think if we, we get many be. emails about the crown uh, we don't really. I think we might be. I think mm. a, I don't know how much the younger generation watch it. I think mm. you and I quite like history. Yeah. So I think we're into it. My favourite part of it is the refreshing of history mm. dramatised. Always. Yeah. I mean, you like and I have quite a wide palette. So we already. I mean, and we we what I think motivates well acted, us cinematic. is that we. I think a lot of people, if they haven't started The Crown, don't want to start it. Totally. And you and I weren't that interested in watching it. Mm. But then for one, for, for one reason or another, we ended up watching it. And that surprise and delight how good it was mm. kind of fueled us the whole way through. You know what's also good about The Crown? So I watched it at home, like intermittently over mm. the last two days. And it, it worked. My parents were coming in and out and joined me for different episodes, but never watched it all the way through. Mm. They, it really works to watch a self-contained episode. Like you can watch the Ritz episode. Mm. It's got really nice like flashback memory into the death of, um, of, the, the, of Margaret. Mm. And then like a nice end, you could just watch that episode yeah. and dip in. And then you can watch the Will and Kate stuff. And my, my mum was loving that. My dad mm. was loving that. And they didn't watch any others, mm. but it works. You, you can just jump in. In, which I think is quite fun. What's quite funny is that my <laughs> I sent a message on my family WhatsApp because about going home for Christmas, and I was like, "Oh, I finished the Crown." I said, "But I'd happily rewatch the last episode if anyone no. wants to." My dad went, "Yeah, I'm not really a fan. Uh, I've I kind of tuned out after the, uh, I I lost interest after Eden, and I was like, Eden, <laughs> that's season one. You're telling me you've watched 1950 five, something. You've watched more five five seasons and it's not been interesting. It's the first time he's ever mentioned it, even yeah. though he's watched all of it. Anyway, yes, The Crown, season six, it's concluded. What will Netflix put in its place? Would you like to see uh, a Peter Morgan treatment to something else in history? Unroyal related. The Crown approach to something else. The Crown else. approach to another period. I, I honestly could do, I would love to see 1900 to 1950. I'd love to see you know you yeah. know in that episode in George season five where it was about the Ro the Romanovs <coughs> and you had a brief flashback oh, to like great. World War One yeah and, and like George the fifth I want to say fifth before the sixth yeah, yeah. Um, uh, although technically before Edward the seventh before George the sixth but yeah yes um, that kind of stuff Ooh. almost not, not Victoria because that's such a long reign it has its own thing but like between Victoria and 
maybe further away. Yeah, further maybe further away. Or more prime ministers, really. Oh, prime ministers were all great. What's your favourite crown prime minister? Crown or crown storyline with the prime minister? I think the yeah, Edward, you, mean, you mean just like in general, like oh, thing they tackled. Mine was the Edward. The, I think the Edward the Seventh stuff. Yes, I loved. To that. me, was just the peak from and the then, history point. Realizing how massive the abdication oh, was, and and how much time they gave it, leading into the footage of him um, mm. marching with Nazis yeah. and shaking hands with Hitler and Goebbels, I thought was just yeah. so powerful. Yeah, that's and, and they do sort of lead you into the, the romance a bit and kind of get you on his side. And nothing's more powerful than seeing that moment and realising who he was. Stop me if we talked about this in the last one. Mm. But I think we, we can agree that your, our favourite queen was Claire Foy. Yeah. My favourite Philip, I'm going to have to say Tobias Menzies. I think oh. he gets overlooked. I love Matt Smith. I don't get me wrong, I love Matt Smith. Mm. And I love Jonathan Price. All of them great actors. But... There's something about the, the way that Tobias Lindsay's did, did it. He did get a good Philip role. He had the not only the kind of suave handsomeness and confidence of, of Philip, but he had that kind of dark, like you wouldn't want to cross him edge sure. Philip. Yeah. You wouldn't want to cross him. a little bit. He got a little bit sinister. Like uh, he has I, that ch- chat with Diana towards the end. He's like, you know, what's going on there? Yeah, I think he should be taken up back and shot. Yeah. Uh, we haven't said Melda Staunton totally carried it. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Da, da, and she's got a much harder job than I think Claire Foy does, even though Claire Foy's brilliant, mm. of having to be much more stoic and much more reserved, but show a lot more just in the eyes and mm. just in little twitches in the face. And playing the queen that we're most familiar with. Yeah, the I think that's that we, a really we can hard easily job. hold up to our screens. Yeah, yeah really well done. So, that, sorry, as you've said, that was The Crown. Let us know your thoughts at hello at popkitchenpodcast.com. And that concludes our bonus episode today. We'll be back next week with uh, an episode uh, about something. It's about something. recording for a while. <laughs> and um, yes, again, Happy New Year. We'll see you next week. Yeah.